0: nice and warm, isn't it? We can be thankful for the great air conditioning we have in here. You might want to bring that up at the annual general meeting and propose it. But anyway, I remember uh, one of the first Sundays I ever preached in here at St. James. It was about five degrees hotter than this. And uh, we had old wooden pews back then. And uh, I was sitting in the pew and I I went to stand up and my shirt had stuck to the pew. And I took the whole brown varnish with me off the pew on my shirt and uh, so anyway be thankful for the plastic seats from Siebel there you go I'm going to pray for us I'm going to pray to ask God to help us concentrate despite the heat Uh, it's the word of God we're looking at so we want to give it our full attention so let's pray our heavenly father we do thank you Uh, even as we sit here in the heat of today we thank you for the way you so abundantly provide for us and care for us uh, and we thank you most of all for the wonderful gift of your word. And we pray now that we won't be distracted in the heat, but instead we will give your word our full attention uh, and we will listen to it, respond to it, and we will seek to change where it calls us to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I need to uh, correct something as we start and thank the people who so kindly came to me after last week and rebuked me. Uh, the, uh, if you look on the back of our sermon outline, every week we tell everyone what's going to be preached on the following week. And uh, sometimes we put who the preacher is, if it's the same preacher across all the congregations. Uh, and uh, so last week on that spot, it read, the greatest sermon ever preached, and then it said Phil Colgan. Uh, and a couple of people came up to me last week and suggested that maybe I needed to work on my humility. Uh, and so forth. But anyway, uh, I need to make this clear. I am not claiming that uh, tonight's sermon is the greatest sermon ever preached. I'm not even claiming it's better than last week. So I don't know, you'll have to make that decision. Uh, I hope it's helpful. I hope it's encouraging. I hope it's challenging. But the sermon that is the greatest is the one that Rick just read the first 12 verses of for us, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That is the greatest speech ever given. Uh, and in fact it's the most celebrated teaching of Jesus that's that's undisputed but I would say it is the most famous speech ever given in in the last 20 years Australia has become increasingly biblically illiterate but uh, even now you find people quoting Jesus without realizing they're quoting Jesus they think they're quoting an old Chinese proverb or something but actually it's Jesus they're quoting and invariably they are quoting the Sermon on the Mount when they quote him so just here's just some of the famous things from the Sermon on the Mount blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth it's one of the most famous lines ever isn't it you know but for those who grew up in the 70s and 80s blessed are the cheesemakers or the peacemakers let your light shine before men, comes from the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek, comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Take the log out of your own eye. You've got to get that round the right way. I got it the wrong way at one of the ones this morning. Take the, that suggests you're actually looking to take the speck out of your own eye. before. No, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's, comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Knock and the door will be opened to you all from this great sermon. That's how massive this is. Uh, Just famous verse after famous verse after famous verse. Sometimes people say, I I wish I could have been there back 2,000 years ago to hear Jesus preach. And I always think, I don't really wish I was there back, you know, with no medical assistance and in the hot dust and walking hundreds of kilometres just to hear him preach. I'm quite happy to be here, even in our non-air-conditioned building. But you have heard Jesus preach as you listen to the Sermon on the Mount read. That's how massive this is. That's how important it is. Uh, And I have been looking forward to this all term. I've been, I've been looking for, I was enjoying the Psalms that we looked at all over the summer holidays, but I've been looking forward to this all summer, waiting for us to get into the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look into it, open up your Bibles at Matthew uh, and before we get into Matthew chapter 5 where it starts we need to quickly look where it fits in because we're jumping in just at the Sermon on the Mount but it comes in a context that comes before it and basically Matthew 1-4 to have all built up to this moment where Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount and so in Matthew at the start, what happens at the start of Matthew's Gospel? Well, We looked at it on Christmas Day, Jesus is born And the big point Matthew makes in his gospel is this Jesus is descended from two really important people, from Abraham and from David. And his point is that's because Jesus is the one who fulfills all those promises that God has made, starting back at Abraham, right through the Old Testament, right through David. I just seem to go in and out a little bit there, but I'll just keep talking. Right through Abraham, right from Abraham through David, Jesus fulfills all the promises that God has made. And that's how important he is. Then Jesus grows up and John the Baptist comes along and he says, this man, Jesus is special. This is God's one. This is the one you're waiting for. And at his baptism, what happens? God speaks. And what does God say? This is my son. You don't get many recommendations bigger than that, do you? And so with that backing, Jesus begins his public ministry in chapter 4 and what he did is summarise for us a key verse Matthew four twenty-three. so come there and look with me it says Jesus was going all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people now, that's really really important because that is the summary of what Jesus was on about If you want to know, what what was it that Jesus was on about? What did he want to tell people about? It was about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Jesus was inviting people to come and find God and come and find a place in his kingdom. And that's where all the miracles and the healings fit in. See, it wasn't, Jesus wasn't just some random healer who walked around the countryside healing people his healings and his miracles had a purpose. They went with his preaching about the kingdom. They were the best sermon illustrations ever given. You put up with my bad jokes, they got healings. Maybe you would have been better off back then, but anyway. You see, the healings was Jesus showing them, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what you are looking forward to if you're a part of the kingdom of God. A place where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. That's what the healings were pointing forward to. So that's the summary of what Jesus was doing. He was introducing people to the kingdom of heaven. But what did he say in that preaching? See, when you read some of the other gospels, when you read Mark's gospel, it just says, and Jesus was preaching, repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of God is at hand. For we never get told, here is the content of it. The beauty of Matthew 5 is now Matthew gives us the detail. This is the message of the kingdom that Jesus preached. And he's answering questions like, how do you enter that kingdom? What does God want for people in his kingdom? So let's get into what Jesus said. Come with me now. Matthew chapter 5 starts at verse 1. It says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So there's why it gets called the Sermon on the Mount, because he preached it on a mountain. But why did he do that? You you have to ask when things happen in the Gospels, why do they tell us this? Why was it important that Jesus went up on a mountain? Well people have two ideas they give for why that's important and why that's recorded for us. The first is the reason we had Exodus 19 read out before we had Matthew 5 read out. And that is all through Matthew's gospel. Matthew is at pains to point out to us that Jesus is the new and better Moses. So just like Moses was the great one in the Old Testament who brought God's revelation, God's law to God's people, and he did that on the Mount, Mount Sinai. Well, it's like Jesus is saying, well, here I am giving you the new way. Now, we're going to think about that more in a couple of weeks when we think about how the Old Testament law fits with what Jesus says. But the second reason is Jesus often withdrew to places like on a mountain to get away from the crowds. Jesus, as, as people flocked around him, after a time, Jesus would withdraw away, and then just his disciples would come to be taught sort of more in depth. And by his disciples, it's more than the 12 at this point, it's a, it's a bigger crowd than that who are following Jesus. And it seems that's what's happening here. He's withdrawing. So he can then just teach his disciples, particularly about the kingdom he's sharing with them. But what's interesting is, it's clear that the crowds followed him. Because if you look there at chapter 5 verse 1, it says his disciples came to him. But now just flick over a page and go to chapter 7 verse 28 and 29 at the end. When he finished the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So it's like Jesus took the disciples aside, but then the crowds came around and listened in on everything that he said. And in many ways, that is very similar to our sermons here at church. Church is designed for the Christian. Church is for the believer. And as we come to church, we are encouraged by God's word and we're equipped to go and serve out there in the world and go and proclaim Jesus and go and share the gospel with people out there, in our jobs or in our schools or in our unis or wherever it is we are but church is always welcome for the crowd to come and listen in and as we preached even though it's aimed at the believer I hope even here tonight there are people who have not yet called Jesus their Lord and Savior who are here listening in and saying I want to know more I want what they've got and hopefully you might then sign up and do Christianity Explained and, and find out more about the gospel so that's what's happening here So Jesus sits down, he begins to teach the disciples with others listening in, he starts with these famous blessings. You might know them as the Beatitudes, Uh, that's just an old Latin word that means blessings, there's no reason to use that and not call them blessings, that's what they are, eight promises of blessing. So before we look at them we need to work out what it means to be blessed because that's what Jesus is offering here, he's offering blessing, he's saying blessed are these different people. Sometimes you see it translated happy, happy are those who mourn, doesn't quite work does it? But being blessed is more than being happy, you can be blessed by God but at a particular point in time not be happy in your circumstances. Even more sadly there are many many deluded people walking around our world happy as Larry when they are far from blessed because they have not accepted the salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ they are standing under the judgment of God. Happiness is only a very small part of to be blessed. To be blessed is something much bigger than that. Now to be blessed means to be approved by God. If I want to write down a definition for your notes over the term, to be blessed means to find God's favor, to have God look favorably upon you. That is what it means to be blessed. And what these verses make very clear is the greatest blessing of all is to be a part of God's kingdom. To be invited in and to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Just look at the first and the last of the blessings. Come with me now. Verse 3 says, the poor in spirit are blessed. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, to be blessed is to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And those verses are like the bookends of these eight blessings. To be blessed by God means to have a place in his kingdom. So, in the kingdom of heaven, you then get explained in between that and the other blessings what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. So, in the kingdom of heaven, we will know God's wonderful comfort. In the kingdom of heaven, we will inherit the earth the wonderful new creation a place where there will be no more pain and no more sin and no more suffering in the kingdom of heaven we will live with God as his children he will call you his son and you will call him your father I just want to pause there and think for a moment that is your hope if you are someone who follows Jesus that is what you look forward to if you're a follower of Jesus this world is not your hope If we are followers of Jesus, we look forward to the kingdom of heaven where we will live with God as our father forever. And I just want to say to you, doesn't that blow your mind? I know it's warm and it's hard for anything to blow our minds tonight. But I want to say, if you have been a Christian for for 50 years or if you have been a Christian for one minute, every time you hear that, it should blow your mind. That God has blessed you by giving you a place in his kingdom where you will live forever with him as your heavenly father. That is the most wonderful blessing possible. Words cannot capture how wonderful it is to know that truth. And so, Jesus' point here in these verses is well, here is the description of the person who is a part of my kingdom. Here is the description of the person who is going to be a part of this wonderful blessing. If you are someone who trusts in Jesus, he's saying, this is what you look like. This is what it looks like to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. And the thing we'll notice more than anything else is that the thing God wants for people who are a part of his kingdom, the things that God uses to describe people who are a part of his kingdom are usually the absolute opposite of the things our world thinks are impressive or important. That's what we're going to see more than anything else. The things that Jesus values are usually things the world despises and the things the world values are usually things Jesus doesn't have a lot of time for. So you'll see there on your outline, come with me, I've put the heading, the eight marks of the kingdom and we're going to look at each briefly in turn. So first one, verse three the poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs what does it mean to be poor in spirit it's not talking about your bank account it has nothing to do with whether you're rich or poor in worldly senses though Jesus says the larger your bank account the less likely you are to be poor in spirit now you see poverty of spirit is about recognising our true spiritual state before God. That's what it's about. Poverty of spirit is that humility before God that doesn't pretend that we can impress him with our good works. Jesus captures it best in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you know that story from Luke 18? You know the story where Jesus says two men came to the temple to pray. One man, the Pharisee, says, look at those people. Sorry, you people over there. Look, look at those people over there. I thank God that I am not like them because they are sinners. It's always the people on my right who get called the sinners. There you go. Don't sit over there. The Pharisee says, look at me. Look at how wonderful I am. God, it's, it's a blessing for you that I'm a part of your people. And then the tax collector walks in, the man everyone despises, the one everyone knows is a sinner, and he can't even look up at God. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, which one of those two men went home justified? He might have said, which one of those two men went home blessed, went home a member of my kingdom? And it's not the Pharisee. It's the man who, even though he was a sinner, was humble enough to admit it to God and knew he needed forgiveness that is being poor in spirit poverty of spirit by the way is not low self-esteem I'm hopeless I can't do anything right that's not poverty of spirit the poor in spirit often have good self-esteem because they find their sense of self and their sense of worth in God rather than in comparing themselves to other people that's not what it's about. Poverty of spirit is genuinely recognising our need for forgiveness, genuinely recognising that we are not good enough. That's what it is. And every true Christian knows that. The, the essence, the, the fundamental sign that someone is converted is poverty of spirit. That's why we cling to the cross for forgiveness And by the way, that poverty of spirit is what I'm hoping that these studies over this term will produce in us. That as we look at the Sermon on the Mount together, as we look at Jesus' radical demands on us for godliness. By the way, if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you go, yeah, I live that, then you are a fool. You you cannot live this out. Only Jesus lives this out in its entirety. As we look at these radical demands, it's meant to create poverty of spirit in us. It's meant to make us say, I fail. So thank you, God, for your forgiveness won for me so dearly at the cross by Jesus. That is poverty of spirit. Next mark of the kingdom, come with me. Verse four, it says, those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. That's a verse that often gets read out at funerals but I think it's often misused at funerals. It's sort of saying, if you mourn, you will be comforted. But it's not talking about when you're feeling sad. It's talking about mourning for our world. You see, our world lives for pleasure. Our world says the absolute thing you should aim for is being happy. And whatever makes you feel good, just do it. Jesus reminds us, he says, "No, if you are a part of my kingdom, then you will mourn for this world. You will mourn for your own sinfulness. You will hate the things you think and you will hate the things you say and you will hate those times when you treat others as you shouldn't be treating them and you will mourn for it. You'll say I long for the day when Jesus returns and my sin is no more. But more than that we mourn at the state of this fallen world. Social media at the moment is full of mourning. It's saying, you know, the world is going to end because Donald Trump is president of the United States. The world has had better and worse leaders than Donald Trump. It's had emperors of Rome who crucified people upside down and set them on fire. He's got a long way to go yet. He will come and go like every leader of the world. This is saying, I mourn for this fallen world because it is full of sin, whether my man's in the White House or someone else's. Jesus says that is what the person who's a part of the kingdom does, they mourn for a world that is broken by sin and they long for the day when Jesus comes to set it right. This is just a little reminder, be careful if you are too happy and too content and too comfortable in this world. The Christian is meant to be dissatisfied with this world, not dissatisfied in the sense of uncontent, in that I wish I had a better house, or I wish I had a faster car. No, dissatisfied in the sense that this world is broken. This world is not my home, and I long for something better. I long for the kingdom of heaven. See, that's actually a sign that you are blessed, is that you are dissatisfied always with the fallenness of our world. Let's keep going. The third mark, verse 5. It says, The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth we know it better as blessed are the meek don't we that's the older translations meekness or gentleness is there any character trait that is less respected in our world than meekness when I say you're meek most people think I'm criticizing them we think you're like a little kitten and when a father gets told that his son is meek or gentle often a father will say well toughen up You've got to stand up for your rights come on we despise meekness in our world we think it's weak but the meekness and the gentleness that Jesus is talking about is not weak it's not weak at all because what it is is, it is voluntarily giving up our rights and giving up our interests to put God and other people first that's what it is to be meek what it is to be gentle. It's not reluctantly and resentfully giving up our rights because we're too weak. It's taking a decision to voluntarily give them up because we put other people's needs above our own. Meekness is turning the other cheek when someone has hit you on it instead of swinging back and hitting them. Do you want to see the meekness and gentleness this is talking about? Just go to the end of Matthew's gospel and read about Jesus going to the cross. Jesus voluntarily giving up his life to pay the price for our sin. You see, I don't think anyone would call Jesus a kitten, would they? The world says, stand up for your rights, look out for yourself. The meek person says, I will give up my rights because I'm more concerned about other people. And yes, the meek and gentle person will often miss out now. That's why you're always told to stand up for yourself. Because the meek and gentle person gets pushed to the end of the line. That's why Jesus says, yes, you might come last, but you will inherit the earth in my kingdom. Let's go on to the next mark, verse 6. It says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled I don't think most of us really know what it is to hunger and thirst for something, do we? Because we've never actually been hungry. And if we are hungry, it's because we don't like the particular brand of biscuits mum bought and put in the cupboard this week. It's not because the cupboard is empty. I was amazed when uh, the Turners had been back for Tanzania for a little while and, and they were telling me that the thing their kids love most about Australia and are most amazed by is the fact that they can turn on the tap and water comes out and you can drink it without boiling it and putting purifying things in it. You see, people in other parts of the world know what it is to hunger and thirst for something. We don't really know what it is, but we still know the idea, don't we? It means what is it that deep in your guts you long for? What is it that deep in yourself you truly long for? And Jesus says, Long for righteousness. Long for righteousness. And here, that means to live God's way. We might call it godliness. That's what Jesus wants us to crave. More than anything else, I want to put off sin and live to please Jesus. That's what I hunger for. That's what I thirst for. Again, it's a good question to ask what is it that you hunger and thirst for? When you wake up at night, what are you dreaming about? Are you dreaming about what you want in this world? Or are we dreaming about longing that we would be more righteous, more godly, living our lives more to please Jesus? We might jump now to the sixth mark, down in verse 8, because I think it's related. And it says, The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of hungering and thirsting, not for righteousness. But for the appearance of righteousness. God is not interested in appearances. He's interested in the heart. The Pharisees would have said to Jesus, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look at the way we live our lives. Look at how much we give. Look at at all these obvious things you can see in our lives. And Jesus said, yes, but your hearts are as black as tar. And this verse makes us look at our real selves and ask the question how do I act when no one is looking is my righteousness just a show for others how, what is actually going on in my brain and in my heart where no one else can see do I hunger and thirst for true heartfelt internal righteousness only two people really know our heart don't they us and God and often we even deceive ourselves but we cannot deceive God blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God let's jump back now to the fifth mark there in verse seven it says the merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy God shows us incredible mercy doesn't he isn't that the uh, grace and mercy are what God shows us mercy is where we show love and compassion to the weak that's what it is to have mercy on someone mercy is about how we treat people who are helpless and in need and God comes to us in our helplessness and offers us salvation and forgiveness he has shown us incredible mercy and Jesus point over and over again is if you have received the mercy of God you will show mercy to other people you know the parable Jesus told about the man who has forgiven a massive debt Do you remember the story where where the man is forgiven like in our language a million dollar debt and then after he's been forgiven his debt he walks outside and he runs into the bloke who owes him a hundred bucks and the bloke says I'm sorry I can't pay you and the man says well I'm gonna throw you into jail and I'm gonna take your house and I'm gonna put your family as slaves until you pay me and the right response there is to be disgusted by that man That's the reaction Jesus wants from us. But then he wants us to look at ourselves and say, You have been forgiven everything by God. So, how now do you show mercy to other people when they wrong you? Are you like that man who, even though he's been forgiven the hugest debt, holds the smallest debt against others? Or are you quick to forgive? You see, the question is are we quick to forgive or are we quick to demand our rights? am I compassionate to others or am I impatient with others the merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy which actually connects now with the seventh mark of the kingdom there in verse nine come with me it says the peacemakers are blessed for they will be called sons of God in the next couple of verses Jesus is going to warn us about all the ways believing in him causes conflict and how often it can actually lead to to breakdown in relationship. But the point here is as followers of Jesus, we should never be the ones who seek conflict or be responsible for conflict. We are to pursue peace. And how do you do that? By being slow to speak and quick to listen. By showing grace rather than seeking revenge. By repenting and apologizing when we are in the wrong. By being quick to forgive when we have been wrong the opposite of a peacemaker is a grudge holder so tempting isn't it to hold a grudge when someone wrongs us and forget just how much we have been shown mercy by God you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth our world says pay back evil for evil Jesus says forgive love your enemy turn the other cheek be a peacemaker which brings us to the final mark of the kingdom there in verse 10 it says those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs and this one gets a bit of an expansion in verse 11 one of the true ironclad promises of the new testament for this life that god makes for you is that if you follow jesus you will be persecuted There are preachers who go around telling Christians, you've got all these promises from God for this life that you will be healthy and you'll be wealthy and all these other things. None of them are true. We have incredible promises for the kingdom. But one of the true ironclad promises that the New Testament makes is if you follow Jesus, people will persecute you. To, To be persecuted for righteousness is to be persecuted, to be insulted, to have people say false things against you, have people call you names, whatever it is. Because you follow Jesus and because you seek to live his way rather than follow the ways of the world. Do you know that at the moment, at this point of time in history, more people in our world are being killed for following Jesus than at any other point in history? Do you know that? More people are dying for the Christian faith at the moment, in our world, than at any other point in history. Now part of that is just because of the incredible population of the world now, compared to earlier, but part of it is because it is more dangerous to be a Christian now in our world than at any other time. And if you go to places like Saudi Arabia, or the north of Nigeria, or to Iraq, or Iran, or all sorts of other places in our world, and you say, I am a Christian, you stand in danger of being killed and every day tens and hundreds of people are killed for their faith in our world at this time when Jesus talks about being persecuted for their faith throughout that's happened throughout history but it's happening in our world today and we have been cocooned from that in Australia over the last 50 years because our country has been based on Christian values but something has changed in the last 20 years hasn't it and about 20 years ago Christianity went from being the dominant, at least the dominant moral view, to being when you follow God's morals, you go you were quaint and outdated, but largely ignored. But then in the last five years, something else has happened, hasn't it? And people have started to say actually, calling on people to live God's way is not just quaint and outdated, it is evil and immoral. And just like the New Testament promised the world will say that you are evil if you follow me you see so now just for saying what God's people have said for thousands of years and saying calling on people that God's moral standards should be followed you are called a bigot or you're called a homophobe and the temptation is to stay quiet isn't it but why are we surprised by this I'm amazed when Christians come and they're surprised that the world treats it. What we should be surprised about is how good it's been for the last 50 years in Australia. Because this is the norm. And the temptation is to be quiet instead of standing up and saying, I'm with Jesus. And frankly, the worst we get in Australia is called names. And we should think of our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who get called far worse. And notice it doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted because they are arrogant know-it-alls. And notice how it doesn't say, Blessed are those who are persecuted because they are rude and obnoxious in their workplaces. Sometimes Christians come and tell me they're persecuted in their workplaces. And I have to gently say to them, Are you sure you're not persecuted because you're rude and you're not meek and gentle? What this is talking about is when someone makes fun of us because we are a Christian or because we stand for righteousness. And anyone who has become a Christian as an adult or as a teenager from a non Christian family has experienced some of that flack, I'm sure. When your family makes snide comments or say, why do you want to go to church, come to the, you know, and all those sort of things and make fun of us. Remember, Jesus says, if people persecute you, if they call you names, if they say false things about you because you follow me, then you are blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And do you notice that like poverty of spirit, the blessing for being persecuted is so closely tied to being a part of the kingdom of heaven you know that they're the two where it says blessed are you for you are a part of the kingdom of heaven I think that's intentional it just reminds us that actually the two go together if we are never persecuted if no one ever says anything to you even the slightest thing then that is probably because you are not a Christian It's probably because you have never even said to people, I follow Christ, and you've never even stood on any matter of righteousness, and you are so like the world around you, that why would they persecute you? Because you're no different to them. If you've never had anyone say anything ever to you, then that's because no one knows you're a Christian. The Apostle Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As we close now, And this is the most important minute of the sermon, so if you've vagued out in the heat, come back with me now. I just want to ask, how did you feel about each of those marks of the kingdom as we look at them? Because there's a danger at this point that you walk out of this sermon saying, oh, so what Jesus is saying is, I need to be more of these things if I want to earn my way into the kingdom of heaven. And I just want to be absolutely clear here, that is not Jesus's point. How do you enter the kingdom of heaven? It's by turning from your sin and putting your trust in Jesus, the one who died for you and rose again. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' point here is to challenge you, if you are a Christian, that this is what you should look like if you are seeking to live now for my kingdom as one who has been saved by me. And to challenge you, if you are not a Christian, to judge your life against it and say, actually, I need Jesus's forgiveness. See, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope you found it this way, is to encourage you and make you feel uncomfortable at the same time. If you are only encouraged, you haven't listened hard enough. If you're only made uncomfortable, I haven't preached well enough. The point is to encourage you and make you feel uncomfortable at the same time because I hope you looked at yourself and said each of those things do describe me but they don't describe me because I do mourn for my sin but all too often I actually quite like it and I do want to put other people first but all too often I'll only do that when it suits me and I do thirst for righteousness I do genuinely long. To live more for Jesus, but all too often I am distracted by the things of this world. And I do show mercy and grace, but at the same time, often I'm one of those people who is quick to judge and quick to condemn. I want to be a peacemaker, but actually I quite like holding grudges. And if that's you, I say, Welcome to the club. Because it's certainly me. And that is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. On the one hand, It is meant to, for Christians, challenge us and say, seek to be like that. Live for the kingdom, like we sang before. Seek to be poorer in spirit. Seek to mourn your sin more. Seek to be someone who does stand up for Jesus and so faces persecution but stands firm. But even more than that, it is meant to create that poverty of spirit in us. We're meant to listen to what Jesus is saying, it's meant to knock away our pride. And make us say I need God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I praise God that I'm not saved on the the basis of my works. Because it's only by Jesus' death that I can be a part of his kingdom. See it's meant to drive us to recognise our sin and grasp even more firmly to the forgiveness Jesus has won for us on the cross.